A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned. The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. That's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be. The Earth is definitely doomed. It's Tuesday, so it must be time to return to the Hellmouth. We're going through the Buffyverse episode by episode and a look back at Joss Whedon's iconic show. I'm MC, and I'm here with... This is Andy. And this is David. This week we're reviewing Teacher's Pet. The original air date was March 24th, 1997. It was directed by Bruce Seth Green. No relation to Seth Green. And written by David Greenwald. So first appearances of a couple of people we'll be seeing from here on out. Yeah, both David Greenwald and Bruce Seth Green will be regulars on this show. I mean, David Greenwald is one of the co-producer, I think is his credit. Yes, he was. Up until the third season where he stopped writing episodes and moved over to Angel. He, he was the real daddy of Angel. Yes. Like, I mean, I know people give Joss credit for that, but it was actually really David Greenwald's baby. Yeah, we'll be hearing a lot more about him when we get to Angel. This episode is the one that introduces him into the Buffyverse. We'll start to get to know his writing style. And this is the first episode that is focused on somebody who is not Buffy. Considering our last few conversations <laughs> on the podcast about Xander, it's interesting it should be about him. It's almost as though they had a time machine, they listened to the last episode of our podcast and said, let's give them a lot more to work with. <laughs> Absolutely. We thank you for all the toxic masculinity that we can discuss now 20 years on. I think the only like, possible positive thing I can think of here is that they at least give us a character who is arguably even worse than Xander. That is very true. We do have Blaine, who is odd in that he survives the episode, but never turns back up again. That's kind of not common with Buffy. If you have a character that is involved in one of these things, usually they'll turn back up, but he doesn't. Well, honestly, I can't say I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, he was such an asshole. Absolutely. He's less a character than a plot device. Oh, Blaine just, yeah, I wanted to hit him the entire time. I was like, just stop. But yeah, you're right, David. He is quite a plot device. I think they did a much better job of like the jerk jock once they got to Larry in season two. Yes. Who I adore Larry. I uh, love Larry. They'll do a lot of things better as they go on. I think this is still... Still early days, and certainly often people say the the worst sin of a bad movie is that it's boring. For me, one of the worst sins of a Buffy episode is that I sit there and I try to figure out how the hell does this monster work? Because I literally was sitting there like, I cannot make sense of this at all. (laughs) So I think, again, early days of writing and still getting the characters and just the nature of the show. I can remember when I first watched this episode... I really liked this one. Now, it might be because at this point I realized how much I liked Buffy. So I had started to record the episodes. So I think this was the first one that I recorded. Because later on I was able to get the pilot. Uh, not the pilot, but Welcome to Hellmouth and the Harvest because they re-ran it. But I didn't have The Witch, but I distinctly remember having this on recorded VHS. So I watched this one a lot. And back in those days, I really liked Xander. And I actually really liked the idea of Xander and Buffy hooking up. And looking back at it now, I'm just like, what the fuck was I thinking? (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. I also really loved Xander back in the day before I think I got a little more involved with my thinking about guys and how they should act because he was funny. I like funny. I still like funny. But that sort of nice guy-ness of him really stands out to me now. But yeah, at the time, oh, Xander was the bee's knees. I think we should make it clear to our listeners that we will not always hate on Xander. It's these early episodes of Xander are really hard to take, but he does go through a character evolution. Oh, absolutely. He actually has one of the more well-developed character evolutions in the series. By the end of season seven, I'm like, I'm rooting for Xander. He, like most people that are human beings, grows and then he backslides a little bit and he grows and he backslides. So again, Nikki Brandon is really wonderful as Xander. And second of all, Nikki Brandon gives amazing hugs i have hugged him (laughs) several times at cons and he really he's a good hugger just fyi i did get the chance to meet him i do have his autograph but i don't think i got a hug from him he squeezed my back fat twice it was wonderful (laughs) (laughs) just getting into this episode the first scene when i started to watch it today i was just like oh my god i am just being assaulted Mm -hmm. by this horrible depiction of teenage boyery because it oh it super bothered me that i mean i understand the idea of teenage boy wish fulfillment but they've been portraying xander with this crush on buffy and as the way it's shown here it's like wow you do not have a crush on buffy you have a crush on buffy's face because she's a brainless, spineless bimbo who's just kind of simpering and it's like oh xander xander have you met buffy <laughs> Right, absolutely. That was my first note is, well, I haven't seen this one in years, because I always skip over it on rewatch. Let's see if there's a good reason for this. Oh, yeah, now I remember. What the ever love and fuck. The opening fantasy sequence is so painful. It is so awful. It. I mean, I'm sitting here just going, oh, I don't remember this. I must have blocked this out of my memory, because this is... I mean, and the thing is, it's not just bad from a perspective of what kind of person Xander is. It's just like, it's so heavy-handed, and it's not a good... I mean, that's the thing. It's like, that's one thing about this episode. It really kind of bashes you over the head a lot. It's just a very leadenly put together episode i think the script is i mean the script's it's okay but it's there's a lot of just like really shoving everything in your face well in making my notes i tend to go to a lot of different places like uh, internet movie database and tv tropes and stuff and somebody pointed out that there is actually a lot of very obvious things stated a lot of you know like little uh, flashback things and it's like yeah this episode came up short oh yeah oh the flashbacks those really got to me like when she invites xander to her house and they have the flashback to the guitar solo. I'm just like, oh, for God's sake, no. This episode came in short and they needed to figure out a way to pad it. Well, and tonally, the whole guitar solo thing, it's not what we come to expect of Buffy, those little interstitial cuts of weird little things, right? That's a different show. And it's not the show we get. Well, I'm all for trying things out and, you know, subverting the format, which Buffy does. But sure. it just, yeah, a lot of it just felt so out of place. I think this is now going down as my least favorite Buffy episode, and that includes Beer Bad. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, absolutely. I I dislike this one more than I dislike Beer Bad. This episode, I mean, it's the first episode that focuses on a character that's not Buffy. And so I actually think that it's really the first character episode, because Mm -hmm. Buffy, her character is spread out so far 
over the show that there's very few episodes that really like go, let's really dig into, you know, what makes Buffy tick. So this is really digging into what makes Xander tick. And it's not good. It's all about teenage boys and sex. And so many of my notes are just fuck toxic masculinity because you have the scene like at the bronze where Xander and Blaine are talking. And it's like, how many times have you scored? Oh. And Xander's like, the, today or this week? Uh, which granted is so obviously fake. I mean, it reminded me of the Friends episode where Chandler and Ross are in college and they're like, yeah, I've had sex. Yeah, I'm good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just watching Friends this afternoon. I really do like that show. Most of my notes are the same way. It's a whole lot of, oh my gosh, what is this? With a few positive things that we can talk about later, but they're very few positive things. One thing I had been thinking about since our last recording is that it's almost as though they're writing some of the stuff out of a book of tropes. Like Xander's entire teenage boy obsessed with sex, toxic masculinity thing, it's awful. It probably was not that uncommon at the time, but it really is almost as though they're like, oh, here's the manual of how to write that kind of character. And not that Xander's entirely written that way, but that aspect of his character is so cliched mm -hmm. and again heavy-handed it's just like let's go all the way with this because this is how you do that and i think that if this was an episode that was really commenting on the toxic masculinity about the badness of it all i could sort of get behind what they were doing right but i don't think david greenwald has any idea about what he's writing the sex part of this episode it ends up becoming a joke at the end when it's you know like oh blaine's a virgin ha 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 <laughs> he's like i'm gonna see you guys yeah right because there's something wrong with virginity now also oh yes it's horrible we all know that well no it's not horrible because willow says it's good so it must be good <laughs> <laughs> that was weirdly like this thing in the 90s where they always used to do like you know oh virgin like remember that movie hocus pocus when they keep on like focusing on the fact that the main character who's like 15 years old is a virgin <laughs> and it's like this is a disney movie and, and he's 15. 15 yes i've managed to block that movie from my memory i really don't like that movie i'm in the minority amongst a lot of my friends on that but I just don't like it. <laughs> a lot of my younger friends love it so much, and I've actually never ever seen it. So uh, I just think I missed that one. I like Bette Midler in that movie. That's what I like in that movie. Bette Midler's great. I, I did a little research on David Greenwald's background as a writer. It was a quick wiki. So growing up in the 80s, you have a lot of those teen comedies, you know, those teen sex comedies that were really, really popular. The porkies type thing. Right. So David Greenwald sort of cut his teeth on a series of teen sex comedies. And pretty much all of them are about adolescent male wish fulfillment that actually gets fulfilled. And I've seen a couple of these. It's been years and years and years and years. But one was called Secret Admirer, which even at the age of like 12, when it came out in 85, 86, I was like, this is terrible. And then the other one was Class. Oh, yes. Do you remember Class? Yeah. Oh, yes. Which was a sex comedy about a teenage boy that has sex with his best friend's mother, his the older woman, much like we see here in the Buffy episode. And Roger Ebert said of this movie, it's a prep school retail of graduate that knows some of its scenes are funny and some are serious, but never figures out quite how it should go together. And the film is entertaining when it's not dealing with this but painful in general. Yeah. So also, these are great quotes from Roger Ebert. No one wrote a savaging review like Ebert. <laughs> 
Right. For Secret Admirer, he says that a moronic package that liberally insults the intelligence of both its viewing audience and the hapless adult actors locked into career low points. I'm just a bit lost on this conversation because I'll show that I'm the baby of the group by saying that I have seen none of these movies. So, Well, I haven't seen Secret Admirer Class and I Secret Admirer rings a bell. The title rings a bell. But I remember when Class came out because it was a thing, but I never actually saw it. Yeah, I, I remember seeing it. So I, <laughs> my parents absolutely outlawed rated R movies in our house, but then would send us to go stay with some of their friends when they wanted to have a night out who had no problem with us watching like R-rated movies at age 10 and 12 that we didn't quite really know how to process at the time. So I've seen both of these and they're both really, really bad. And they're both really focused on this really adolescent wish fulfillment. So I think in terms of what David Greenwald is doing with this script very much harkens back to where he cut his teeth as a film writer. Mm -hmm. can totally get that. Yeah. I also wonder if this is one of those, strikes me as an episode where they weren't thinking so much, how can we make this good? But how can we make something the network will say, oh, this is, yeah, this is good. We'll put this on TV. And I think they were also still in the idea of we need to make something different. Like there are vampires in this episode, but it's like, you know, what are we going to do? Um, uh, giant bug lady. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Giant bug lady. (laughs) With some of the worst CGI. Well, actually, no, it wasn't CGI. It was a rubber suit. Okay, but where she turns her head all the way around, that's that's CGI. CGI. It's 97, so I'm going to give the bad CGI a pass. Yeah, the praying mantis puppet was Negrath prop from the first season of Babylon 5. So that prop was made in 1994, and they uh, just lit it really dark. And actually, for the, the praying mantis for 1997, I didn't really have much of a problem with effects because certainly Buffy has worse effects later. Yes, I'm talking about that big, like, snake oh, you know, yes. thing. Yes. I thought the suit was quite passable. I mean, not best effect I've ever seen, but certainly reasonable. They lit it dark and, you know, only showed, like, bits of it. Right, and in fact, I think one of the most uh, successful parts of it is when Buffy slices it up at the end, which they do entirely in silhouette, and that shot really well. <laughs> Bruce Seth Green comes up quite a bit as a director, uh, quite a bit. They obviously really liked him. He's one of the ones that holds over from this first season because you don't. Yes. Besides David Greenwald, I think none of the regular writers and the regular directors besides Bruce F. Green sort of come back throughout the run. And uh, Bruce F. Green comes up several times on some really good episodes. Mm-hmm. Related to a note that I made, it's that the first season really does have a different tone to season two and later and that's i think i think we had mentioned it last week that we're missing a lot of the key writers um involved david greenwald's the first one that is going to hold over but also the music when buffy was going through the park uh, trying to find the fort guy it really struck me. It's just, wow, this music sets so much of a different tone to what we will see later on. Because they get the amazing, amazing Christoph Beck, you know, for the second through, I think, four seasons. And man, his music really sets such an amazing tone. I mean, Joss knew what he really wanted in terms of the tone of how the people talked and what the show was about. But I think I'm going to say a lot of the success of Buffy's moodiness really comes from Christoph Beck. The music that they have in the first season really does harken back to that whole B-movie feel, Mm -hmm. which isn't bad, 
but isn't what I think of when I think of Buffy now. Right. Now in hindsight. Yeah, absolutely. We've said many times, it's like they were finding their feet still. I think they were also, you know, trying things out and going, does this work? Does this not work? And I think that gave them a much better sense of where to go when we hit season two. Right. And I think we mentioned before that this season sort of took place in a vacuum. There was no audience feedback to build on because they just did all the episodes in one go, not knowing if it was going to be anything more than 12 episode mid-season replacement that never saw a second season. Moving on to some important events that happen in this episode, Willow and Xander don't meet Angel, but they see him for the first time. Oh, yeah. Right. And this is the first time we've seen Angel since um, the harvest. I mean, granted, that's not really saying much because, you know, we've only had the witch in between, but he gives Buffy his leather jacket. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Was that ever actually a style wearing leather jacket over one of those t-shirts? You mean for Angel? For anyone. <laughs> oh, I had a leather Because he takes it off and he's jacket. wearing a... He's wearing... Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the right term to use for that is. That wouldn't be problematic. But yeah, but does... I mean, did anyone actually just wear that as a shirt? Cannot remember what shirt he's wearing. Okay, I'm going to use the problematic phrase. He's wearing a wife beater. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. People totally wore leather jacket. I, I remember it. Okay, I guess I'm old. Because that's, yeah, I, 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 because I, he took, took his jacket off and I was just like, really? That's what you're wearing? I, I'm not going to be the fashion plate on this show, so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe it's a little, it's cold to be doing that in the winter because he says she's cold, but then he's a vampire, so he probably doesn't get that cold. So I don't know. Yeah. Also, I think they probably want to show off David Boreanaz's arms. Right. Oh, and of course, in this case, that's actually plot relevant as well. Yeah. Plot relevant, sure. Poor David Boreanaz is really, really terrible at this point. He is, yeah. (laughs) He's really bad, which is funny because in just a very short time, a year later, he's just killing it. You know, he's amazing. I think part of it might have to do with the writing is that, and I mean, because it's not just David Boreanaz. Sarah Michelle Gellar sounds so fake when Buffy's talking to Angel and trying to be all confrontational and is like, oh, cryptic guy, you know? Yeah. And I just don't get what kind of dynamic they were trying to set up with them at first because it's only a couple episodes from now that we will have Angel and suddenly it will become this grand romance. Right. And that there's so few scenes with them to set it up as, you know, confrontational rang really false to me. Yeah, I have to say those scenes are just not well written. They're really, there's there's nothing there. It's like we, we want to set this up. So here you go. My note was that, you know, if I had watched this season now, not knowing a thing, he wouldn't have made that big of an impression on me. I mean, back then, I had already called he was a vampire. My roommates and I had. I don't. Did you guys know when you started watching? I don't think I cared. <laughs> <laughs> I really didn't like Angel. Well, I, of course, came in at season three. So, yeah, I, when I saw this, I certainly knew. Yeah, I, I figured that one out. My only brilliant deduction probably in the history of all TV watching was that. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say it's obvious, but it's not a tough call. no. No. The scene with Xander talking about how buff Angel is yes. kind of brings out some Xander and Angel shipping feelings. Oh. <laughs> I will probably get more into this later on, but I mean, this also ties into the whole idea of Xander and the toxic masculinity, but mm-hmm. I really feel like Joss really could have gone with the idea of Xander as a closeted gay man. 
And he has actually said that he wanted to have one of Buffy's main friends turn out to be gay. And he decided to go with Willow because Seth Green decided to quit the show. But I actually think there are more clues for Xander to eventually go down that path in that, I mean, this is the first episode where we have Xander going after a woman who tries to kill him, which is, that goes all the way until season seven. That's basically Xander's type, really. (laughs) With his crush on Buffy, Xander is always going after these incredibly unavailable women. And he is hyper aware of the attractiveness of men, so that Honestly, if they had decided to go with that, I totally would have bought it. Oh, I totally would have too. Oh, yeah. yeah, I just went, eh? Because I just, Angel just doesn't do it for me. David Boreanaz just doesn't do it for me. So the shipping of them, it's just a personal visual preference <laughs> that wouldn't work for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's fine. Actually, David's not really my cup of tea either. <laughs> so... <laughs> It's just crack shipping for me. I mean, hell, I've I've sh- I've shipped Vader and Tarkin and, and Star Wars. Oh my so. god! What? I'm not convinced that isn't actually in Star Wars. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, here's one thing we do find out in the episode. Oh, oh, we're back to the episode now. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. We find out Xander's middle name. Oh yes, yes, Lavelle. Yeah. So I thought that was fun that we. Uh, do we ever find out Willow's middle name by any chance? We never find out Willow's Maybe she doesn't name. have one. Yeah, I remember during the second season in the fandom, people really liked the idea of Willow's middle name being Anne, and then that turned out to be Buffy's. Hmm, right. Interesting. Uh, interesting. Do, do we know Willow's last name at this point? Yeah, she, they call her Miss Rosenberg in this episode. In this episode, okay. Because I just, I, I'd forgotten about this last episode, but there is this instance when they're talking about Amy's mother and... Buffy says, you know, Nazi mom, and Willow says, Heil. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell is that conversation? (laughs) Interesting point, David. Yeah. There are points when Willow's Jewishness will actually pop up in small ways. Like, what was it, the Christmas episode? And Willow's like, I'm still being Jewish. Yeah, even though at that point, she's kind of not really, and which is something I personally understand because I'm not religious in the slightest. So it was it was weird to see that conversation in the last episode. Wow, really? You said that to a Jewish person, and that Jewish person responded like that? Eek! Yeah, yeah interesting. Was, yeah, I was definitely put off by that. I was kind of like, Ugh. <laughs> again, it's like more like in a bad writing kind of way, or or at least a we don't have this character figured out yet mm-hmm. way. Because it's like, yeah, that... Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. When it becomes more obvious that Willow's Jewish, it's like that conversation is just insane. One thing that really bothered me, aside from everything, (laughs) uh, was (laughs) it's been a while since they found out about the Hellmouth and everything. I mean, they've obviously, you know, gone through things. And Xander is still so stupid that... A teacher goes missing, and he's just like, hey, we're not going to have to do the homework. Yeah, Xander is, I actually wrote down that Xander's not just stupid in this episode, he gets to be meta-stupid. He's, yeah. It's like, like when Buffy tries to warn him about Natalie French, mm. it's like, your jealousy, which is really stupid, is making you stupid about listening to Buffy about monsters. <laughs> it's like, wow, your stupidity is like 
mounting. He's not only stupid, but he's so fucking self-absorbed because the entire episode is about him talking about how Miss French wants him. And then when Buffy tries to warn him, it's like, oh, well, I think you're jealous because, you know, I'm gonna, you know, score with this hot teacher. And it's quite clear, of course, that that stems very directly from him seeing her with Angel. He gaslights her in that scene. He literally just turns around back in her face that she might actually know something than just being an object of his desire. Mm -hmm. Because right now that's all she is. She's the object of his desire, but he has no real idea who she is, what her internal life is. I just wanted to yell, she's the fucking slayer, Xander. Like, you should be listening to what she's saying. You know it's a hellmouth. You know she's the slayer. You know weird crap goes on all the time. But you have to turn it around and really put her in a bad position. Yeah. And I wanted him to get eaten and there'd be an alternate universe where he gets eaten in this episode and we get a better funny character to, like, replace him. Again, I love Xander later on in the series, but right now I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. And I have to say, this episode goes out of its way to take his worst qualities and just magnify them. Yeah. Given the the type of story it is, that was going to happen. We haven't really talked much about Miss French yet, played by Musetta Vander. She obviously plays a huge part of the episode. So uh, what do you guys think of this uh, this one-off villain character? Um... It's fun when she eats crickets. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I actually went and looked that up. I was like, hmm, is that something she would eat? Yes, yes it is. Because apparently there is a taking care of your pet praying mantis page on the internet. Yay! Yes. (laughs) Of course there is. Of course there is. I do think Musetta Vander is a very attractive woman. Mm -hmm. And I thought she was very well cast for someone that the male population would, you know, be falling all over. But also being... Very aggressive looking in the, you know, she could mm-hmm. be a bad guy. She did a lot of TV appearances in the 90s. Yeah, I saw that. Did her IMDb page. It's fairly extensive. She got around. I mean, she never stayed yeah. in one place for very long. There's like one series she was actually on. Other than that, it's just one off or two appearances in a show yeah. but there are a lot of them i mostly know her because i'm a huge fan of highlander the series and there was one episode right. where she plays a french woman who failed to kill hitler hmm. and has been making up for it ever since huh. she's of south african descent which is why she's got like a little bit of a strange accent on her mm-hmm. which i think works well for the character and yes. giving her an exoticness I don't know. I mean, like, the, the, the Miss French character was... She was so over-the-top predatory. Yeah. <laughs> Changing into that little black dress and with the martini and everything. <laughs> it's like... I was like, is this episode supposed to be, like, a metaphor for, like, the Mary Kay Letourneau teacher-type things, which actually happened after that, but certainly that's been a thing for, mm-hmm. like, ever. You know, this predatory teacher who goes after a student. But it seemed so over the top, like even by Buffy standards, because they often do things that, you know, hearken to real life. It just apply monsters to it. But this became almost a parody of it. And I don't think 
we'd had so many female teachers and male student stuff in the media by this point. In 97, a lot of the Letourneau thing happens later. Several of those that didn't really come to the forefront. So I think a lot of people just thought, oh, older woman, younger man, younger man should like it, not really think about the implications of it. The other thing I noticed in this episode, which made me think, oh, this is definitely written by a man, is that Buffy actually subtly body shames other women in the episode. She says things about Natalie French, praying mantis lady, before she knows she's a praying mantis lady and things like that oh. that are very subtly like the, oh, surgical improvements, you know? Yeah. And mm. now the line about the shoulder pads that she has about the, I'm trying to find it, is really a funny line. And I think in another context, it'd be really, really, really funny. But because it comes in this sort of really distasteful episode, even that, I was sort of like, really? Yeah. Come on. I think if it had been in a different episode, it wouldn't be that noticeable because there are other instances of that sort of thing. I mean, the way she dresses being a, a hint that she's a monster. I mean, that's something has been that was presented in the first episode. So that might not seem so off, except that it's in the middle of this morass of this type of story, basically. You'll, you know, you'll forgive me, Maneater story is, I mean, they're, you know, 50 science fiction films. There, there aren't a ton of them, but they're out there. It's certainly not new to uh, entertainment here. And I think they're very much playing on that. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if David Greenwald went and saw Roger Corman's Wasp Woman before writing this. It is a particular type of story, and in that type of story, a lot of these are just so much more blatant than they are when they turn up elsewhere. Yeah, the, the, the line, which is funny, is Buffy says, her fashion sense just screams predator, and Willow says, yeah, it's the shoulder pads, which is, it's a really, really funny line. But again, there has been very subtle body shaming going on. From other women, from Buffy, yeah. mm -hmm. which does happen several times in this show, and it's usually in in the episodes that are written by men. So, yeah. mm -hmm. so I wanted to point that out. That sort of yeah, as a villain, she does not a lot for me. It's it's again, this is not an episode I rewatch much at all. I mean, it's again, I don't think yeah, it's not a great episode, and so the fact that she's really not much more than functional as a villain is sort of like. I agree with you, but I'm not surprised because this story doesn't deserve a good villain, quite frankly. In terms of things that we actually liked about the episode, oh yeah, <laughs> which I think is very few. Can I talk about one other thing that I just really hate in this yes. episode? <laughs> sure. And again, this is this whole episode that, and I, I don't think they made this choice specifically, but there's there's a song in the episode by Superfine called yes. I Already Met You, which is also on the soundtrack, and it's one on the soundtrack I skip every time also, yeah. because it's actually really gross and misogynistic. The The lyrics are like, I already met you, you're like my last girlfriend and the girlfriend I had before that. Ew. So again, yeah, it's go back and listen to that song. It is on the, the Buffy soundtrack, and basically the song is just about this guy that's like, I go on this date, and you're mean to me, and you, you criticize my, you know, because I've already met you, and you're just like the girl I dated, and the one I'm going to date next. And the So even when Within, it's just the grossness continued so that really stuck out to me the guy in the band is wearing a great 90s shiny shirt which i do love <laughs> that was really great so even the background movies was really really sexist yeah super fine did uh two songs in the episode they did already met you and they did stoner love at the end of the episode and he's also playing a really nice pelham blue strat 
So I wouldn't have noticed that, but thank you for pointing yes, out. Yes, no, yeah. I yes, I just I saw and they've re I think they've revived the Pelham blue color recently. So if he was playing a nice ukulele, I would have recognized <laughs> yeah. that, but yes. instead, <laughs> I don't know much about guitars. Now, in terms of stuff that I actually liked in this episode, mm-hmm. it's only small, little, tiny, tiny things. I really love the moment when after they discover Dr. Gregory's body, Giles gets Buffy a glass of water and she says no thank you, but drinks it anyway. Mm. Oh yeah. It was such a touching scene that Giles is taking care of Buffy and that she has liked a teacher so much that she is really affected by their death that she's in shock. Mm-hmm. And so it was a very humanizing moment. Yes. Yeah. I also love Dr. Gregory. Yes. Dr. Gregory was fantastic. He's really, really fantastic. And i he's the only teacher that we actually ever see in the series that's not Jenny be nice to Buffy. Uh, there's also the counselor in Beauty and the Beast. Right. Yes, there is the counselor who is also lovely. Um, So if you're nice to Buffy, you're going to die. Yes. I, I really like him as a, a teacher because he's really caring, but he's also really firm. He's not just like, oh, it's all going to be okay. He's like, get it together, do the work, and you're going to be great because I have faith in you. Yeah, no, he's he's terrific that way. You know, I would have loved to see Buffy have a stronger academic mentor as much as I love Giles. And we all know how much I love Giles. She didn't really get that academic mentor that I think could have really helped her a lot. I was really thrown by the line about Dr. Gregory saying that Principal Flutie had showed him Buffy's permanent record. Yeah. And yes. I'm like, why the fuck did Principal Flutie do that? I mean, there, there's been absolutely no reason to do that. Well, the answer to any question about Principal Flutie is because he's an idiot. That is true. Uh, and I do have a note that says it's a good thing that he gets killed because uh, otherwise Sunnydale High would have gone bankrupt on crisis counseling. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Man, too bad Sunnydale got blown up because I would have done great there. Yeah. Could have had my own <laughs> private practice and work for the school. Would have been amazing. Uh, I would have understood those children. <laughs> see, Joss is out to get you. This is the problem. I know. I don't get a fictional job at a fictional place. No, that's hard. Damn you. I, yeah. The whole thing with Dr. Gregory made me think back to what we were talking about last episode about, you know, the lack of competent and not neglectful adults in Sunnydale. And and my immediate reaction to this was, oh, that's, there are so many of them, the ones who aren't like that get eaten. Yep, that's exactly what happens. And Dr. Gregory is, and that's the thing, he really is, he's clearly a great teacher. Despite my questions about how he runs a bio class on one side and a chemistry class on the other side of the classroom, but he really is, I mean, he's very encouraging to Buffy. And this, and this again goes back to, again, what we were talking about last time, about how Buffy is not stupid. I do have some notes in here about all of the stuff that Buffy is able to pick up on in this episode. Absolutely. uh, She's able to pick up on the fact that Dr. Gregory died around the last time they saw him because he's wearing the same clothes. She's the one who puts together all of the little bits of information on the praying mantis. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of Buffy doing, you know, deductive reasoning and research, which later on... The research seems to go on to other people, which kind of makes sense because they will add more and more characters later on and they need to give some right for everybody to do. But I really appreciate how much smarts that such an awkward sentence, but yeah, how smart Buffy comes off yeah, and that she is not just the slayer. She is able to really figure out things and take control of things. Yeah. So 
ordering Giles to go record that sonar. Right. And back in the days when we still had tape recorders. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's two things that really stood out to me as, wow, this is the 90s. And that's the use of a tape recorder. And when Willow is hacking, they use the phrase hack onto the coroner's office oh. rather than hack into. And it's like, wow, it's the 90s. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I'm actually thinking now that one of the things... Because we get more characters, because those characters need sort of specific jobs, Buffy sort of loses a little bit of that ingenuity she has in the first yeah. season. A little bit, which is terrible because, you know, like I said, I'm a huge fan of Buffy herself. Yes. I absolutely love her. Yeah. I mean, we see that she's smart and we see that she's really quick in a fight and can improv and things like that. But these first couple episodes are really setting up some things that I don't know if we see from her again. Yeah. yeah. Which I think is a shame. What I liked was that for once, you know, I mean, yes, throughout the series at various times, we'll see Buffy intuit stuff and, you know, pick up on things. But that's sort of implicit. And it's there if you look for it. But I was, I really loved that Mr. Gregory, for once, there was a character who explicitly said, you're smart, you can do a lot. If you do the work, you really could go places. And no one really ever says that to Buffy again, I don't think. Professor Walsh makes a comment about it before it turns out that she is part of the initiative. Before everything goes to hell, yes. <laughs> even Giles, I'm going to criticize Giles. Oh, mm -hmm. He even complains about stuff, even school. If it doesn't relate to the slang, he starts having a problem with Buffy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even if she has to, like, I can't do that. I got to study for a test. And I know this is life and death and it's the whole fate of the universe and apocalypse, apocalypses, mm -hmm. whatever the plural for apocalypse is, is coming up. Yeah, we don't see people academically besides Dr. Gregory and Maggie Walsh really give Buffy credit where credit is due. I think in terms with Giles on that, it comes from his watcher training because mm. Buffy is absolutely singular when it comes to being a slayer mm. and having a life outside of being a slayer. Yeah. We will be introduced to Kendra later and we find out Kendra was taken from her parents when she was a young, young child. Basically, these slayers are, you know, warriors who all they do is fight demons. But Buffy has a life outside of that. And I think sometimes what Giles has been taught to do as a watcher conflicts with the way he is actually being a watcher for Buffy. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too. It's a minor criticism of Giles, because, mm -hmm. again, I don't like Giles to criticize Giles because he's perfect. Um, and his tweed. And it's also early days. He hasn't developed, again, into the Giles we will come to see. He hasn't internalized the idea that, oh, you can actually go up against the Watcher's Council. Uh, yeah, Giles, yeah. It's almost as though when people say, oh, yeah, you you should, yeah, you should go to like a big university. You, you should go to vocational school. You know, that kind of pejorative way of saying that. And it's almost like people say that, like, even people who know Buffy and know she's the Slayer are like, well, yes, well, you're the Slayer. You won't really succeed outside of that, but you're really good at that. And it's a very unfortunate way that people, I think not with bad intentions, but I think a lot of people have internalized that idea of Buffy as this is what she does, and this is who she is, and 
they're not able to see much past that, especially at this point in the in the series. And that's going to come up as we go through the series. And, and I really think it ends up really affecting Buffy's self-esteem, mm-hmm. how she feels about herself that you see through seasons and it gets worse and worse. I think she starts off as this really confident young woman mm-hmm. and she gets it back. I think by season seven, she gets it back. Yes. But there's yeah. that part in the middle where she really has so much self-doubt. And I also think this is a great piece of world building those things do play later on yeah yeah i mean that i think it speaks well for the people who make the show that they were able to take that kind of unfortunate thing and actually do something with it rather than just leave it lying there as an unspoken thing oh absolutely buffy has an amazing inner life that i think we do get pretty heavily into as the series goes oh yes as as it goes on we will but i think at this point we're we're very much i I guess i'm really I'm, i'm thinking very much in terms of giles who means well but has sort of that watcher's council perspective still yeah and and the watcher's council certainly do not expect or want the slayers to have anything outside of slaying going on there's one other thing i really like in the episode and it's like tiny because obviously charisma carpenter is in the opening credits so they have to figure out how to put her in every week and the writers knew where they were going with her i'm almost positive with her Mm -hmm. eventually becoming part of the gang so it's just always nice to see those like bits of cordy and she's horrible and she's awful but she's so awfully great right i just really smile every time i see her and her just ridiculous things that she says but you can see her starting to what the writers are sort of building on for her so again a thing i like is i always like cordy i always want more cordy well cordy is great at what she does which is being awful (laughs) That's <laughs> and later on, she goes through a tremendous character arc. So, I mean, these are such early days for her. And it's really funny because I, mean, I think it's season three. Buffy compares herself to Cordelia back before she was the Slayer. And she's like, you know, I, I wasn't like this. I was like somebody that we won't name called Spordelia. Spordelia. Uh, <laughs> so she, you know, that is considered a, an insult. But they actually do go on very, you know, similar paths. I mean, I think Cordelia's takes a lot longer to actually go through and that she spends a lot more time, you know, on the mean side. She has further to go. As the show goes on, I kind of miss her mean side. By the time she comes over to Angel and she's basically really good, sometimes snarky, sometimes I'm like, I really want you to say something cutting and witty, Cordelia, because I miss it. I miss your awfulness, not because I want that kind of awfulness in my real life, because it's really funny writing that we lose sometimes. And it's funny that you should bring that up in the first episode written by David Greenwald, because so much of the... Back in the Angel days, they would call it St. Cordelia. Or actually, they called her St. Corduffy. Ah. Because she had kind of morphed so much into a Buffy character. There is quite a bit of problems with, I think it's around Angel season three, that they really had changed Cordelia from this fun, kind of mean role well, and I think you sort of really do have to look at those series as separate. And I mean, yes, they cross over, but I always sort of feel like Angel Cordelia is not the Cordelia that leaves at the end of a graduation day. Yeah. Like it's almost two different characters that sort of share a name and some background, but are not. So like Buffy Cordelia, 
I sort of wish she could be on Angel more because I love her. I just think she's hilarious. Since Angel was mentioned, just throw out a random piece of trivia, but the actress who played the real Natalie French, so not praying mantis lady but the elderly woman that they come Ah. to see is jean spiegel howard and she was married to rats howard who played angel in the body swap episode of angel carpe noctum ah yes and is uh and is ron howard's mother yes so natalie the real natalie french is ron howard's mother that's a great fact yes that's that's right I, i i did not catch that that's an excellent fact i love that fact I, I did have one one random point, which may or not be of interest to anyone. When Natalie French is walking home and Fork Guy steers away from her, I see in her groceries, she has a box of Quisp. Now, Quisp was this cereal I knew from my childhood in the 60s and 70s. But what I didn't know, and I looked this up, it actually was brought back in the 90s and the 2000s. And it made me actually look up how old Joss Whedon is. And I never realized that Joss Whedon is only a few months older than I am. <laughs> so I was like, because Quisp was a thing. The, the, the ads were done by J. Ward Studios, who were most famous for doing Rocky and Bullwinkle. And they were great ads. If you were a kid in the 60s and 70s, you remember the Quisp ads. <laughs> and I was like, oh. Someone put this here on purpose because you don't randomly pick Quisp off the shelf for a prop. (laughs) Final thoughts on Teacher's Pet other than nobody's going to watch it again. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm never going to watch this episode again. You know, I I think this series was taking a couple cues from the X-Files with the egg sack in the closet. I think we've talked about that before. So that was kind of interesting. And... This is the first instance of a mention of shawarma in the verse. I have a note here. A shawarma joke from Joss 22 years before the Avengers. I have a note on it, too. Right. <laughs> Yay, shawarma. Now I really want shawarma for dinner. I think this episode is incredibly forgettable. I think yeah. this early series spends so much time on Xander because it's only two episodes from now that we get the pack, which is another yeah. thing. Oh, we're going to have fun with that one. <laughs> I don't know what I'll think when I actually rewatch it. I suspect it's a better episode. Still probably painful. Yeah. But better. <laughs> it's slightly better. But we will get to that later on. But next time we'll be reviewing Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Until then, grr, arg. Grr, arg. Grr and also arg. We'd like to thank everyone who downloaded the podcast, and an extra special thanks to everyone who shared and liked it on social media. You can find us all over the web. We're on both iTunes and Stitcher, and we've also uploaded onto YouTube. Just search for Return to the Hellmouth, and be sure to rate us while you're there. You can leave us comments at our website, returntothehellmouth.com, on Tumblr and Facebook at Return to the Hellmouth, or on Twitter at Hellmouth Return. Or you can email us at returntothehellmouth at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read your comments on the show. For those of you who are Star Wars fans, there is a new episode of our sister podcast, The Trash Compactor, available for download. See you on Tuesday for Never Kill a Boy on the First Date. Grr. Arg.